Before we get into the episode, a quick reminder that this podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only, and nothing should be construed as investment or legal advice. If you are enjoying on-ramp media content, please like, subscribe, and share as it goes a long way in helping others find the signal through the noise. Now for a word from OnRamp, OnRamp is a Bitcoin asset management platform built on multi-institution custody. Leveraging our partnership with BitGo and their 10 plus year track record in securing assets, and CoinCover, the premier digital asset risk mitigation company, OnRamp's multi-institution custody is a segregated institutional grade vault requiring two of three institutions at any point in time to sign once a client's unique permissions have been met. At OnRamp, we understand that your Bitcoin journey is a multi-generational pursuit, catalyzed by the ideals of perseverance, aspiration, and legacy. That's why we're proud to introduce OnRamp Heritage, a suite of private client services dedicated to ensuring your Bitcoin legacy is preserved and passed on, embodying the true essence of wealth that goes beyond mere numbers. If you would like to learn more, please schedule a consultation. As we prepare for the Bitcoin halving and the next wave of global adoption of this nascent and growing asset class, we are halving all annual maintenance fees for clients that secure their wealth before the next Bitcoin epoch. What you're telling me is that music is about to stop and we're going to be left holding the biggest bag of odorous excrement ever assembled in the history of darkness. 1974. 1987, 92, 97, 2000, and whatever we want to call this. It's all just the same thing over and over. We can't help ourselves. I say when we sell. Hey, 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 I say when we sell. We've got a very unique setup for this show. Jesse and I are in Texas, and Michael is over in London, joined by the Cartwright team. Glenn Cameron, who's been on the show before. And Sam Roberts, the CIO of Cartwright. Michael, I'll let you open this since you, Glenn, and Sam have been hanging out and talking for the last couple of days. What's going on over in London? You know, well, we took a red eye from Texas last night, you know, hopped over the pond and uh, went to meet Glenn and Sam and had some good conversations, excited to uh, roll into this. This is one of the ones that I think I need to say less of. And we have experts in the room, asset allocators that have been looking at Bitcoin for a very long time and excited to have a conversation with them. I am as well. And Sam, before you re-entered the room, I couldn't see you before, but I was telling, I, I thought I was telling you, I was just telling Glenn and Michael that the first time Glenn was on, he explained uh, how he joined Cartwright and the interview process he went through, which was essentially you making sure that Glenn understood Bitcoin and Bitcoin specifically. And I think for the purposes of this show and just building on the first episode we did with Glenn, it'd be really interesting to learn about your big, your background, how you became so convicted uh, on Bitcoin particularly. Yeah, sure. So uh, brilliant to be here, by the way. Um, and good to, good to be live with you guys. Um, I've obviously seen you in the past on previous podcasts. Uh, and yeah, that trick question I asked them was, what do you think of crypto? Uh, and I'm pleased to say you passed. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. So my background is, I'll, t I'll take a step back and then sort of take a run up into um, how I've ended up here. Uh, so I'm an actuary by career choice. Um, that since started in 98, so many years ago there. Um, and 
uh, I first started sort of having thoughts about you know, things aren't quite right in 2008. And that, I was looking all over the place uh, for answers to that. Uh, found myself uh, going deep into the Austrian School of Economics. Um, I think it's a natural step from there, certainly in those days, uh, to then end up as some kind of gold bug. Uh, so uh, I think that's yeah, a, a commonly treaded path. Um, I was then focusing on my career for the next few years and then came back to, um, I heard about Bitcoin in 2013. Um, I did what I normally do, which is I dabbled. Obviously, in hindsight, I wish I'd dabbled a lot more than I did, but um, sort of just tested it out a little bit um, and then forgot about it. Uh, I didn't really understand it in reality in those days. Um, but then it rolls around to 2020, and obviously everything that was going on then, uh, central banks taking action as they uh, want to do. And into 2021, where I was then had the chance to, to go a bit deeper into Bitcoin again. And I took the, took the path again, pretty well trodden, I think. Um, I had a slight diversion into uh, crypto, um, which... I've, I dabbled again. So again, there's an, there's a, there's an idea. Does it make any sense? I feel I have to test it out for myself, uh, which is what I, I then did. I then very quickly realized uh, that it was a dead end, essentially, to put it politely, uh, which then helped me to come full circle back again to say, okay, so it's Bitcoin only. So that takes us to sort of late 2021. And then... 2022, uh, a key date in my mind was, uh, it was 24th of February 2022. So that was when, uh, that might have been when, I can't remember the exact date actually saying that, uh, but it was Russia had invaded Ukraine at that point. And it wasn't so much that, it was more the event of the US and indeed other nation states confiscating Russia's uh, treasury bonds. Uh, and for me, that was that was a real inflection point. Um, so I'd built up uh, a Bitcoin-only understanding uh, at that point, and understood about you know the lack of counterparty risk if you hold it in the right way, etc. And for me, that was it wasn't you know, it wasn't about whether Russia was right or wrong or whatever thing. It was the fact that one nation state had confiscated another nation state's assets, uh, just a stroke of a pen. Uh, and that, for me, was a turning point. So it was, it was a couple of days later, I had a team meeting, and I said, okay. I think they were all a little bit shocked. <laughs> but I said, okay, we now need to be thinking more carefully about Bitcoin as a serious option for our clients. My expectation, which I think I told you, Glenn, actually, at that time was that it's going to take a couple of years for us to get to the stage where clients are going to be able to invest, possibly a bit longer. Um, so two years rolls on, we're almost at that two-year point, and we're, you know, very close, I think, to to helping clients get into this asset class. So uh, it's a very exciting time. It's been a long time coming, um, but very pleased that we're here today. Yeah, it's it's crazy to think about somebody in your shoes too, as the CIO of Cartwright, and you have this duty 
to your end clients may not be doing as deep of research into these subjects as you have to make sure that you're getting them the right information. So leaning into your personal journey and having to basically come to grips with the fact that crypto is noise and Bitcoin is signal. As you mentioned, the confiscation of treasury assets is a very large event that really highlights uh, this counterparty risk exists throughout the system and Bitcoin is the solution. And then having the wherewithal and the foresight say, okay, we've got to go on this journey to develop a thesis and a process internally before we can go get our clients into this years down the line. How, like, how do you sort of pitch this to your clients now that you've spent this amount of time, two years building out a process, building out a thesis, finding the right counterparties to get you access and your clients access to Bitcoin. Have you been pitching Bitcoin along the way, or is this a point now in time, February, 2024, where it's like, all right, we have everything in order on our end. We can then go begin telling our clients about this. So we started seriously telling clients in October, just gone. And that was in the context of an asset allocator, portfolio construction. Uh, you know, these are people, our clients are people that look after other people's money. And I think that's a really key difference. You know, me personally, or anyone else personally, you can dabble, right? You win some, you lose some maybe, um, but you can dabble and you can test things out to understand them better. That's fine. But that's not what our clients can do. Um, in the same way, they need to be much more confident in what they're investing and much more confident they can get the advice and the proper analysis around that. So we very much pitched this as a small allocation to Bitcoin. And Bitcoin only, obviously. Um, but the small allocation is also important. And because uh, it helps them to dip their toe in the water. I think also what helps the small allocation um, sort of uh, from our point of view, and this may be something we can dig into a bit deeper possibly, but in simplistic terms, I think we've got a couple of phases coming up. So we've got the monetization phase and then we've got the uh, increasing in value in line with economic growth generally. So sort of a, what gold has effectively done for, for, for a few thousand years um, you know, the old Roman Roman suit um, idea. So you've got two distinct phases. And the advantage of that first stage is that you can justify putting a small amount in, 2 3 4% of a portfolio, and you know what your downside is, 2 3 4%. But you've got this massive upside potential. And I think that is what is extremely helpful at this stage because um, when you start plugging it into you know, any kind of investment risk model, it looks very attractive. Yeah. <clears throat> to take a step back, I think uh, it's always fascinating when Glenn first came on and Chris Kuyper and very uh, senior professionals that are used to speaking the language of asset allocators. You guys have amazing positioning. Uh, there's a the term inversion. Um, that Chris brings up. I was just talking the other day. It's not going to come off the top of my head, but there's this angle of being able to like flip, um, like what would cause Bitcoin not to work or what would cause it to not appre like appreciate. Um, 
but to go backwards, we kind of glossed over the 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 uh, the t- uh, the question to uh, Glenn about you know I think it was very transformative or very important to the whole process of you guys like finding a person to lead this unit, and I I say that because um, as we're coming out east, we're going to be in the UAE. Um, there's folks that we're talking to in India and uh, Dubai, Abu Dhabi, um, the Middle East, and this this idea of counterparty risk is understood by them. And they understand that the ETF may not be the solution, similar to what you're saying about the treasuries. Different angle, but similar concept mm-hmm. of like, who's your counterparty? And when we met Glenn, it was top of mind, all the way up the stack. What do you, what do you um, uh, invest or what do you offer? What's the counterparty, the, the solution from a custody perspective, do you, you know, the delivery mechanisms, all these things that were important. And so going back to that clever question, you were, there was a test there, but I'm curious, like, how did you think about why it mattered and how you had to find the right person for this whole like, journey? Because I think that's like, one of the most pivotal points to find the right person and, and, and the right counterparty to make sure that you could actually get the right uh, uh, yeah. like, solution. And we're fortunate this is a growing area and therefore these opportunities are more likely to come along than if it's a contracting area. Uh, and so uh, Glenn's been fantastic. Um, it was a bit of a coincidence um, in terms of the timing. Uh, so I mentioned February 2022. Glenn joined in May 2022. Um, obviously, we'd had some discussions um, before February. So uh, that worked. That I mean, that worked very well in terms of the timing. Um, and I think that I think our clients are looking at it partly from a counterparty risk point of view and partly from inflation point of view. Um, I mean, they're not mutually exclusive scenarios, economic scenarios, but in some ways they can be. It's simplified down to that. So you have a economic contraction that increases your counterparty risk. Increases your counterparty risk if you own bonds. Are they going to be able to pay you the coupons? If you own equities, what their profits going to be like? If you own property, are they going to pay the rent? So you've got there tends to be a correlation with higher counterparty risk in an economic contraction. And then, of course, the flip side is that uh, the central banks uh, printing, creating inflation, uh, the hard cap of 21 million then really comes into its own. So you've got this fantastic combination of extreme scenarios where uh, historically, gold would have played that role, um, but of course now we're in a now we're in a new world, and, and Bitcoin is, I think, gradually going to take over from gold in that role. Um, does that answer your question? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, you raise a really good distinction there that I don't think we talk enough about um, in this space of, you know, people often fall into the trap of like, well. Uh, I, if I'm going to hold a, a sound money asset, I might as well hold gold because it's proven. And like, that's going to be a, a better store of value and a more reliable. So I'll, if I'm going to do anything, I'll include a little bit of gold, but they're making this, this uh, mistake, this fallacy that of assuming that Bitcoin and gold are in a similar sort of point in their life cycle. Uh, and I think you're right to call out that like you want that end state, stability in in this asset but that's not where we're at right now Uh, instead there's a huge asymmetric upside opportunity as we get to that eventual place for bitcoin which is many 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 trillions away 
in terms of monetization uh, and, and you know, total asset value. So, you know, I, I think that's a, a unique lens that I haven't heard. Uh, and I think it's probably coming from your role in trying to communicate this opportunity to pensions of don't think about that end state, think about where you're at right now. And the end state is, is, you know, where you'll eventually get, but the, the real exciting part is, you know, the monetization process that Bitcoin is still at the very beginning of. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, we've got we've got a saying in the um, in the in sort of the investment community, uh, which is very variations on it. But the the future is not necessarily a reflection of the past, or you know, something similar to that. So, the idea that gold's you know done what it's done over the last five five thousand years, I mean, it's obviously impressive, right? It should be given credit for that. But but I can't invest in the past. I can only invest in the future, and so. I need to look at when advising clients what's the future what's the likely future scenarios that we that we can um, foresee or um, test out or uh, envisage and also if well bitcoin in april is going to have a better stock to flow ratio than gold by a long shot double the stock to flow ratio right so <clears throat> If you look historically at what's happened when a harder form of money entered a society, well, then all of a sudden that slowly kind of eats away at everything else. So actually holding gold is a risk, right? Because if Bitcoin eats gold's lunch, if gold becomes demonetized, you certainly that argument of like, oh, well, if I'm looking for an asset that's a store of value, I'll just go with gold. What if in 20 years' time it's been demonetized and now it's an industrial metal, right? So you definitely don't want to be making the mistake of saying, I need a store of value asset in my portfolio. It's obviously gold because that might be the worst thing that you can do. And then also, nobody's saying that the probability of Bitcoin doing that is 100%, right? But it's some percentage. I like to think it's a quite a large percentage probability that it's going to do that given Bitcoin's properties. And <clears throat> so if you give me, um, you know, a hundred opportunities with high probabilities that they're going to come true and with huge upside, I'm going to take every single one of those bets or make an allocation to all of those things. The trouble with this is, is that you can't rely on the law of large numbers because you've only got this one bet, right? But there's also the danger that, like we discussed, I think, the last time, is that because everything's denominated in this fiat, these fiat currencies, um, that essentially, you, I remember Marty joking about black hole insurance, right? like Bitcoin acting like a back hole and like sucking all the value out of these other assets because as it monetizes, that value has to come from somewhere, right? And as and the biggest asset class where that's going to be the case is bonds. Another one is property. Um, probably the last one, if it 
would happen would be equities because you know <clears throat> there you kind of i mean essentially because your not your revenue is going up <laughs> as the the in nominal terms um you kind of protect it i mean equity has been a, a good long term like inflation sort of protection kind of asset um bonds definitely not properties right, right. overvalued right so it's you know the idea that oh well if i want to store a value asset in my portfolio i'll just put gold in there okay so what are you expecting a zero real return right that's what you're expecting and at the same time it gets demonetized and how much of your portfolio are you going to put in gold right whereas you can put two three four percent in bitcoin right and it kind of it's going to have a material impact on the rest of your portfolio um you know so and you you especially like with different types of investors right you can't afford to be using huge chunks of your portfolio as kind of a long-term store of value you've got different objectives you need to grow the capital or you need to hedge liabilities or something like that whereas with this thing it's just kind of like the sprinkle of salt you know that you put on top of the meal um and you know you can get yeah. busy with everything else that you want to do with the portfolio and just have this thing there kind of yeah it's it's so interesting that you guys marry this um uh you know the the first principle of thinking that is necessary to understand the, the value proposition of bitcoin but through an actual actuarial lens where you guys are evaluating this in terms of probabilities numbers and how this works out in different scenarios and then finally having to to filter that through the fiduciary obligations that you have providing advice to pensions because of the, and specifically with regard to the the mandates that those pensions have to take care of people's retirement money uh and that combination um is kind of unusual i think in the bitcoin space there's a lot of people who are in similar roles that we've yet to really see find bitcoin but you know maybe whatever circumstances it was that you guys in particular had that allowed that combination of three things to line up just right to to see it to get it and and i think to solve such a big problem in in um in pensions of you want to have that sound money uh safety but you don't want to set aside a huge portion of the portfolio to provide that protection because because glenn you're right with with gold you'd have to if you want to protect the portfolio you got to have like 50 percent of the portfolio in this in this asset that's going to generate you know no real return versus two three four percent in an asset that can provide the same function of protecting in you know in terms of the sound money properties that it delivers because of the growth in this early stage in the s curve monetization phase that that it also comes with uh, and you know that insight i think comes from the combination of those three lenses that you guys are bringing to the table and that every other pension uh, every every pension allocator every pension consultant uh, sits in the same role and has yet to like really put together those dots 
but I think that, you know, we're going to see a greater trend of that because once you, once you really understand Bitcoin and that's the first principle, heavy lifting that has to happen first, then the conclusion is this, that like, if you want, you know, it's the most attractive thing to include in any portfolio, if you have the right uh, position sizing and that's just two, three, four percent. And so I think the built, oh, sorry, Sam. Um, I think there's something else that's needed as well as those three things you mentioned, which I agree with all those three. It's willingness to think outside the box, or if mm -hmm. I put it another way, the willingness to see outside the bubble. Um, I think, you know, we look across our industry in the UK and you know, look at the actual profession and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, they're doing lots of hard work in lots of areas and some of it's quite useful, but it's within a bubble. It's it, and you need to get outside of that bubble and you see the bubble for what it is. I suppose another way to describe it would be a fiat bubble and all the things that go along with that. Um, that I'm sure you talked about before. Um, but you've got to step outside and see it for what it is and then realize that it's fine for that to be 98% of a portfolio, but you also need something outside of that bubble as well. And that's what gives you that diversification, being out, having something. The exact percentage almost doesn't matter, but having something outside the bubble. And to build on this line of thinking, I think I have a three-part, I do have a three-part question. How do we settle on this particular allocation? two to four to 5%, whatever it may be, what sliver of a portfolio allocation does it fall under? What bucket does it fall into? And then three, at which point do you think it becomes abundantly clear to uh, everybody that this is the strategy that needs to be employed, uh, some sort of allocation towards Bitcoin? Uh, maybe it's not even a decision that's made willingly. Maybe it's forced upon market actors via benchmark or something like that? So, I mean, it, it really depends on the type of client. So if it's a corporate treasury, if it's a pension scheme, if it's a charity, if it's a funeral trust, it depends where they are in the investment journey. Are they, do they have a short horizon? Do they have a much longer horizon? Um, but initially, it's kind of like, the first thing that you normally come across when you approach a client and you say, hey, I want to talk to you about this thing called Bitcoin, is they're like, isn't it too volatile, right? So when you're thinking about the percentage you should put in a portfolio, you're thinking, how much can I put in this thing without there being any sort of perceptible effect on the overall volatility of the portfolio, right? And what you find is you can kind of done, do rolling sort of four or five year periods where you kind of put 2% in, you, you back testing, right? And you're saying, would I have noticed the volatility both from a kind of a standard deviation or a normal volatility portfolio or from a maximum drawdown kind of perspective in the overall portfolio? And if you put two in, you, you can't you can't even feel it, right? You can't see it, you can't feel it. It's like, you know, why wouldn't I do this, right? 
you put three in, it's kind of like, again, not perspective. Once you start getting to five, right, then, because, you know, you find that, like, so, for example, in March 2020, when they locked us all in our houses, right, um, uh, they, um, you know, everything becomes correlated, even Bitcoin, right? So, but Bitcoin's drawdowns are like, you know, 60, 70%, right? So if you got 5% in a portfolio, it's about, you know, it makes about 35 basis points difference to the drawdown, something like that. Um, if you put like, no, what, sorry, what, no, it's about 3.5% of the drawdown if, uh, if you've got 5% in a portfolio, right? So that you start to kind of notice, whereas 2%, 1% extra drawdown takes no longer for the portfolio to recover to its previous high. It kind of feels like that point where you can kind of, you know, everybody stays calm. You know what I mean? You don't want people like, especially when you're introducing an entirely new asset, an entirely new concept, all of these ideas and whatever, you want it to be at a level where everybody's like, you know, I mean, 2% is sort of like the allocation that a FANG stock might have in a portfolio, right? Just one stock. So it's kind of like easy to, you know, introduce somebody at that kind of level. Whereas if you start talking about higher allocations, it's a more complicated conversation and, and you just want to kind of get people off zero rather than, you know, asking them to do a lot more than that. I mean, this may be sacrilegious for this show, but the right allocation <laughs> for some pension schemes is zero. Yeah. Um, and it, I think ultimately it comes down to, normally it comes down to time horizon. So if they are, they're different types of pension schemes, um, you know, you've got DB and DC over in the States as well as, you know, we've got the same over here. Um, so... DB actually, once it gets well funded enough, a final salary scheme or a defined benefit scheme, you can pass the whole lot over to an insurer. So actually, your time horizon to invest is until you can afford to pass it to an insurer. And for some schemes, that might be, you know, might be six months. Um, so oh, wow, wow. actually, they won't even have any, uh, particularly with the rise in uh, bond yields. Uh, generally, uh, that has actually improved the funding position of a a lot of fund and salary pension schemes. Um, so a lot of them are in a good position that actually they just want to lock down as much risk. They shouldn't be having equities. They shouldn't be having any growth, which to your question, Marty, that's where it fit if in the growth allocation for fund and salary schemes. Um, and so you just want to move them across to insurance and low risk. And all you're trying to do though is make sure people get the pensions they've been promised. You're not looking to do anything fancier than that. Um, in a secure way as possible. However, there are other schemes where they might have 10, 15, 20 years to go. In which case, then they do have some equities. They do have a growth portfolio, in which case then some kind of allocation to Bitcoin within that uh, makes sense. And I think that's probably the, uh, that's the category where it's, it's, uh, it makes sense to get off zero. That that that's really that's really interesting. That uh, two very notable things you include there. That what the conclusion that you guys have come to is that this fits in the growth 
category of any portfolio. And, and I think I certainly fall into this, uh, this reflex, I guess, at this point of, uh, oh, it's, it, you know, it's a sound money asset. It's a scarce asset. It's a hard money asset. Um, it, it's its own thing, really. It's a 60, 40, zero, like that zero should be higher. Uh, you, know, bond, you know, you have your, your equities, your bonds, your hard money, uh, and everybody overlooks that category. It should be its own thing. But you guys are cleverly putting it in a growth category. So um, you're thinking about it as a replacement for like a growth uh, company stock. Uh, and, and that's very notable and informative for anybody who, who's trying to think about how to justify where to include Bitcoin in their portfolio. Uh, and then the other thing that, that I want to follow up on is so makes sense that, you know, six month timeline, six month horizon pension scheme, Bitcoin doesn't make sense. It's, it's too volatile. The, the possibility of like a March 2020 event is non-zero and you don't, you can't have that. Um, 10 years plus, there's, there, the, the growth will bear out, uh, you know, if the thesis is right with Bitcoin. Where do you draw that line though? Is it, do you, do you, do you, you know, uh, subscribe to, okay, a four year cycle? is what you need to live through or is it, it, it different in your minds so we've said the minimum is four years right so that um <clears throat> but obviously if it's longer it's better ideally you'd want longer than eight years so two cycles right <laughs> but um but four years at a minimum i suppose it would also depend on where you started right so if we <laughs> have a massive bull run now in the next 18 months, which is kind of what I guess we're all hoping and expecting, um, that, you know, if then a uh, client came to us, then would probably dollar cost average in uh, and would probably kind of do that, you know, put in, you know, would space the, the, the kind of entries wider rather than kind of doing them quite quickly um and if it's going to take like two years to get them in and they've only got four years total horizon then it kind of doesn't make sense right so then you need a little bit of a longer horizon because definitely i mean i think it's you know it's we we talk a lot about uh, investor behavior and psychology and stuff. And with an asset like this, it's definitely going to bring out the greed, right? So we're going to have that blow off top at some point, And then it's going to, you know, crash to, you know, a level which is much higher than the last time it crashed, right? But um, nevertheless, if you get in at the top, it's not going to feel good and it's not going to be for good for the portfolio. So I think you, you know, like now, and we've even kind of said this in our communications to our clients, it's ideal. Nobody knows what the future holds, right? But it's ideal if you really like an asset and it's had a bit of a tough time, that's the time to kind of make an allocation, not kind of win everybody's going, everybody and their dogs saying, I've got to get some Bitcoin, right? Then it's probably the time to say, okay, well, let's kind of, you know, get in, but very kind of gradually and slowly.
we might be getting too much into the into the nuances, yeah. uh, possibly. But um, I think it's it's not just what do you think the time horizon will be. It's also how certain can you be that it will be at least, say, four years or, or whatever number you pick. Um, so there are, you know, if you've got a a defined benefit scheme that's that's taking lots of investment risk, you think the time horizon is ten years, but actually, you turn around five minutes later, and equity markets have done really well, and bond yields have shot up, and they're they're fully funded, they can go to the insurance market straight away. Or they're close and the company suddenly has some cash and throws it in uh, and, and then you can go to the insurance. So if you've got these kind of uncertainties around the DB scheme, then it then creates uncertainty about the time horizon. So it takes a lot of thought to make sure that it's right for each particular scheme. And that's DB schemes in particular. And then there are other types of scheme as well where I think it also gets quite interesting. And I think comes back to your point about sound money um so if we move to like say, defined, <laughs> defined contribution we call them over here or money purchase um so the company and the employee throw some money in a pot and the pension is whatever it buys whenever that member retires in that scenario uh a small allocation can make a lot of sense um and in fact often they're not buying an annuity at retirement, they're continuing to invest it. So actually their time horizon could be not just the, you know, 20 years until they get to retirement, but maybe another 20, 25, 30 years after then. So we're talking about a really long time horizon there. Yeah, this is actually an important part because um, you're referencing the, the time horizon and whether it's explicit or implicit, because you guys fundamentally understand what's happening. I feel like you're educating beyond any time horizon and, and wanting them to think much longer than whatever's on their benchmark. I'd be curious like how you guys try to navigate that because historically like institutions have been effectively exit liquidity for the system, right? They see it running and then that's when they get in and then they're burned and they're like, what did I do? And so that has to be at the, you know, in the back of your mind as you guys have been educated and be curious how have you thought about that and try to get in the under the underside of um, something we think about a lot at OnRamp. It's about every, these institutions are made up of individuals. And so it took you going through 08, took Glenn having his background. We'll, we'll maybe save that one for, for beers. I don't know if we, <laughs> we need to yeah. discuss publicly how he got to be the way he is. But, um, <laughs> um, but this idea of it starts at, a, at an individual and it feels like as much as it's talking to the pension, it's also the individuals that are there and helping them see it. Um, anything you guys can share there, I think, is is helpful because there's a lot of people that listen that are having these conversations across the board, whether it's family members, their treasury, uh, at institutions, and they're all trying to figure out what is the right. And there's no silver bullet, mm. but you guys are navigating this in real time. Um, so anything you can share there would be nice. Yeah, yeah. sure. I mean, so it's always interesting, right? Because there's that moment where you say, okay, Bitcoin could be right for this client. So now you've got to contact them and it's usually an email, right? So you've got to kind of, you know, in this email, say to them, I want to talk to you about Bitcoin, right? And I've been pleasantly surprised, right? Because you, I would say nine times out of 10, they're like, okay, let's have this conversation. You know, I think maybe, maybe what it is, is they're like intrigued, interested, 
you know, just curious, want to learn more, right? There have been instances, like with a, a head of corporate treasury, where we contacted him, and he sent us back a chart of Bitcoin and said, look at this thing, it's so volatile or whatever. So then we sent him one with a logarithmic price axis saying, <laughs> actually, you should think of this as like something in the adoption phase and that like, um, you know, you want to look at percentage changes in the price and you can see in that logarithmic kind of price curve how it's slowly being adopted over time. And then he came back and he was like, um, we don't want anything that isn't backed by anything or something like this, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, <clears throat> so you don't always win, but nine times out of 10, they're willing to have the conversation, right? Well, the important thing there is yeah. that he didn't just ignore your email. He came yeah. back with questions. So I think that's yeah. where a lot of people are at. You know, everyone goes through their own journey uh, in learning about this. And sometimes that'll be, what do you mean? It still hasn't died yet. Yeah. Uh, and that will that will you know get their interest. Um, so it's it's quite interesting how um, how different people will take different routes in there. And I think whilst we're in the monetization stage, which I mean you know it could be, who knows? Oh, I mean, a I've, couple I've of decades it, maybe well, yeah. could easily be. Yeah. Um, but equally, no one knows. So things could happen. Actually, uh, I find quite interesting the. Um, the impact something else can have on itself uh, sort of in a circular way. So actually it might speed up the adoption of Bitcoin because it exists. I know that sounds a little bit circular, but that's sort of the point in that because there is an exit route, it means that people run faster towards it, which then leads more quickly to the collapse of the existing system into Bitcoin. So I've seen some, you know, some people say well, it could take three generations and that's to do, and I, I it makes sense. Um, you know, it's it's about people. It's the psychological way that people think about thing these things, and are they used to it, and and so on. Um, but I suppose, yeah, I'd like to be alive for the end of it. So, uh, <laughs> uh -huh. in some I, ways, quicker the better. I, I was, you know, I was thinking about uh, the point Sam's making about maybe happening. You know, like like Parker Lewis says, gradually, then suddenly, right? Right, right. You remember um, when um, it, it was like March last year when all the banks were kind of in trouble and Credit Suisse basically went to the wall. And you, I remember, I can't remember if it was on this podcast or one of the other ones, Marty, where you showed that chart where the bank stocks all like going down and then at exactly the same time, Bitcoin going up, right? And um, <clears throat> we've been looking at like setting up uh, corporate treasures with access to Bitcoin and um, actually having software to kind of plug into the normal corporate treasury systems and stuff. And the company that we're talking to who's got the technology to do all of this stuff, um, like kind of told me without mentioning names, they've already got like companies with more than a billion pounds in Bitcoin, right? And so like I was thinking when that stuff was going down, like imagine you're a big company and you've got like a few million in cash in the bank, right? 
how how do you get it out when you know the proverbial's hitting the fan what do you do like go and say please give me like you know big you know i don't know briefcases or something full of cash i want to get it out of the system because i'm afraid right but with these kinds of systems you can just say just buy bitcoin with it and now you're entirely outside the financial system right there's no way that anybody can debase it no one can there's Out, no kind of the bubble outside the bubble right and so i wondered if that is what caused because there was also this vc uh, uh guy, silicon valley bank First, yeah and he put out this note to all his investee companies yeah. saying oh, yeah. yeah like um you know buy some bitcoin for for situations like this so you can still make payroll and all this kind so of I think, stuff. so that's one of the things that um quite interests me is this sort of escape route idea so um by and I suppose, uh, you know, so in corporate treasuries, for example, if they've got a small amount in Bitcoin, they've got the infrastructure set up to then make a quick allocation if they need to. If they start from scratch, you know, it's not going to be five minutes to, to get their money out of the banking system or, or some of it or, you know, just to in reduce their reliance on certain banks or whatever it might be. So that escape route for corporates, I think, will be really important going forwards. Um, escape route for individuals. So, in particular, you know, we're so we're investment advisors and employee benefit specialists. So we can, you know, there's loads of interesting things going out there, but we can only focus on what we're we can do, what our skill set is. So, uh, on employee benefits, uh, the, what we're trying to set up is a Bitcoin employee benefit um, system, or you know, um, ability to do that. And one of the reasons I like that is because it gives individuals a, an escape route. Um, it also, you know, if you've got no exposure to something, you've got limited interest in learning more. If you've got, even if it's only 100 quid, $100, whatever, you suddenly you're interested in it, disproportionately so, um, but you're more interested in it and therefore you'll see the headlines, you'll read more reports, you'll maybe read your book. Yeah, one thing just to anchor, like this is common practice from business continuity. When uh, that that Silicon Valley Bank, I was with Marty that weekend when it was happening. I remember it vividly, thinking about like, holy crap! Like they have to they have to figure this out by Sunday because it was just going to be crazy mm -hmm. anarchy on Monday, and they did that Sunday night. But it's this idea of like you gave enough people the time to think about what if I don't make payroll? Like what what are all those things? It's almost. Um, negligent not to have some capital outside and everybody has their own balance sheet whether it's an individual or a business and so to have those rails even if it's a river account in the u.s or a coin corner account in the uk and maybe start playing around like you're like you're referencing it's like this isn't a conspiracy that the banks just like have not given people their money it's, it's true they they shut them down it's not a there's no question about it and so to not question or think about what is your options whether it's a pension or an individual it's almost just like so, you know, at your own risk at this I point. I think we are seeing live the flipping of the previous view, which was, I don't want to go anywhere near Bitcoin. It's too volatile. Um, I've got a fiduciary duty. I'm looking after other people's money. It feels like gambling. And we're sort of in the process, in the middle of flipping to a situation where it is actually irresponsible not to consider it. And mm -hmm. I, uh, well, the quicker that spreads, the, the better, I think, because, you know, we want to protect our clients 
as best we can from these risks. And they're, you know, they're big risks out there. We, we, yeah. we, um, we were talking to uh, trustees of a funeral trust. And what happened was they got into this sort of quite tech-heavy equity fund at the end of 2021. It was kind of like the beginning of <laughs> the time. investment journey, right? <laughs> to peak, the peak. Yeah. And then they, they, it literally like crashed like 40% on them, right? And then they're like kind of lay trustees. They're not like investment, either, you know, investment savvy. So they were like, okay, like this Peloton. is too much. Peloton. Peloton's like peak 2021. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then they were like, okay, um, we want our money back. So they took it out, right? And then... They put it in the bank. And which bank did they choose? Metro Bank. And Metro Bank ran into trouble and had to get recapitalized, right? But there were a few days there where the money was in the bank and they didn't know if the bank was going to be okay. So that was kind of like their experience was... They took the 40% haircut and then they might have taken the rest of it if they didn't fulfill the... <laughs> and it's like a whole fiat adventure, right? Because... You like put interest rates at zero, print a whole lot of money, hand it all out, right? All these tech growth stocks go through the roof, right? Then inflation roars, then you raise interest rates, then they all come crashing down again, right? Then you have all these banking crises and whatever. It can be more obvious that you need something like Bitcoin. Glenn, you got to be careful. You're going to get Marty all riled up. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm thinking because uh, I'm thinking I'm thinking back to last March when this was all happening. We had a number of companies in our portfolio, 1031, that were exposed. I mean, the Bitcoin industry as a whole was probably the most exposed because of the lack of access to banking relationships and <laughs> banking relationships that did exist. Uh, the the banks that failed at Silvergate, Signature, Silicon Valley Bank, First Republic, like those were top three banks, the first three for, for the industry. And so people were moving quickly and a lot of them were buying Bitcoin and putting it in something like an unchained vault or holding it on river. And I think it's important to highlight here too, like, yes, you eliminate that third party risk as well, but diving back into like the long-term strategy, there's also, it's an exit from this third party risk. But if Bitcoin does what we, what we think it's going to do, particularly in the context of something like a venture-backed company, it could extend your runway into the future. So you start by allocating the Bitcoin to eliminate that third-party banking risk that exists. You hold Bitcoin on your balance sheet, and then the price runs, and you wake up for eight years from now, like, holy crap, my balance sheet is 5x, uh, or the, the Bitcoin portion of my balance sheet is 10x, which has allowed me to have significantly more runway and you can apply this to a pension or any type of fund for that matter uh, in the future. Yeah, it goes from being defense to offense really quick. Yeah, you get Yeah, you you get a lot when when you buy bitcoin, you're not you're not just getting gold. You're you're getting gold plus growth plus you know something that sits outside of the bubble outside of the system and, and benefits in, in the event that there's trouble in the system. And, you know, and plus you're getting the, you know, you're buying a, a stake in the internet of value in the early days of the, the second part of the digital revolution, in my opinion, to complement the internet of information that we already have and assume is, is everything, but it's actually half the story. 
there's so many things that you get when you make an allocation to Bitcoin. And I think that's part of like when you guys are running it through your actua actuarial tables and seeing like, you know what, if, if, if this is two to 5%, not only is the volatility acceptable, but you get all this incredible performance out of it too. It, it becomes something that so long as your time horizon is long enough, uh, it, it becomes a bit of a no brainer really. Uh, if not a no brainer, then at least a, a hugely asymmetric upside bet. Yeah. And what are we trying to achieve for our clients? We're trying to maximize the return for the same amount of risk, or we're trying to have the same return and reduce the risk. You want assets with this kind of risk profile, not all, but you want a bit. Um, and that's exactly what we're, what we're talking about. Thanks for tuning in. If you're interested in exploring any of these topics further or want to learn more about how we can help you secure a new or existing Bitcoin allocation, get in touch with our team at onrampbitcoin.com. We look forward to supporting you on your Bitcoin journey. But, but Glenn, I don't, I don't invest in crypto. I, I don't invest in crypto. What do you guys say to that? Because that comes, that obviously. Neither do we. Yeah, we, we don't either. Yeah. Is, I would imagine that's the response, but can you expand on that? Because that's something we obviously get a lot when we're, we're doing outreach or having discussions is uh, I don't invest in crypto. And, and So right up front, whenever I talk to people, I say everything I'm going to be saying today is not about cryptocurrency, right? It, we, we need to make a distinction right up front so that you don't make the mistake of me talking to you about this asset and you going away and thinking I was talking to you about cryptocurrency, right? I was not talking to you about cryptocurrency, right? I told them, if you hear any of these terms, NFT, Web3, blockchain, crypto, right? I am not talking about those things. And I suggest very strongly that you stay away from them because at best they're sort of dot-com companies if you want to be generous and you know kind about them but in reality the very vast majority if not all of them are scams or there's some kind of uh, way that the banking system or whatever is going to kind of co-opt them and they, you're just going to have the same thing over again, right? With blockchain, private blockchains or whatever, where they essentially like, oh no, it's all safe because it's a digital ledger and whatever, but there's only like three nodes on this ledger. And when they get into trouble and they need to bail the system out, they'll just create a whole lot more digital tokens. You know, um, so I would try and kind of separate. And then, and then three hours later, <laughs> <laughs> we start the presentation. Yeah, yeah, but but you know, it's it, it's like kind of making it clear that like there's. I also like to say to people that it, all of this other stuff is just people copying Bitcoin. That's all they did, like, right? And then and. So the only real thing here is Bitcoin, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. If if you view Bitcoin as far out on the risk curve already, just by looking at just a pure market cap um, comparison, <laughs> you'd have to 
be even crazier to allocate to broader crypto. It's way further out on on the risk curve compared so to it actually helps. Actually helps Marty. It helps that our clients are more cautious as they should be because mm-hmm. they're looking after other people's money. Because then it's you've got okay, cryptocurrencies and then you've got the one which is the well, I mean obviously there are ones that came before it. Um sort of known as the first, isn't it? But there were ones that came before that. But it's the one that that works and has the press and the network effects and all the rest of it. So if you combine that and then we can help them through the sort of what is money angle. Um and then it's really well, it's the perfect money as long as it doesn't get killed. So it's all about <laughs> So it's, all, so it's like the perfect asset for, for someone to do it. You, okay, you've got to assess what are the chances of it getting killed. And if you get comfortable with that, I haven't, uh, haven't found anything convincing myself yet, then it doesn't matter. Nothing else matters. Um, so that makes it a bit easier. Yeah, in, in that sense, it's it's the perfect asset for for everyone to be holding, and, and pensions in particular. You, you, Sam, you touched earlier on um, on how I, I think this uh, that my understanding of it was is correct that for def, defined contribution plans schemes, um, it it can be a little bit easier to justify uh, this type of asset versus defined benefit plans. Uh, and to me, it's it's, it's almost a shame. Because I, I don't know if it's, I assume it's the same in the UK that uh, here in the US, we have a lot of uh, underfunded um, defined benefit plans. Uh, and and the, the US government in particular has a huge uh, burden of, of unfunded liabilities in, into the future. And from my perspective, I don't see any asset that helps close that gap except for Bitcoin. You know, and I think that, that, um, Bitcoin could be the only thing that saves a lot of these uh, under, underfunded defined benefit plans if they can wake up to it uh, fast enough um, and see the value proposition, which most of them won't. But you know the, the opportunity is there for for those who can. Um, any any thoughts on that? I think you're right. I mean, I think the underfunded schemes, by their very nature, will tend to have a long time horizon because you expect it to take a long time to pick up the returns from equities or, or whatever other growth assets you've got. So they would naturally fall into that category of having a long time horizon and therefore should naturally fall into the category of um, uh, a small Bitcoin allocation makes a lot of sense. Uh, so I'd hope that a lot of them pick up on that because we are, you know, we are going from a one era to another era, I think, for lots of different reasons. But one of those eras is moving, and we have been doing it for the last 10, 15 years or so, is moving away from the defined benefit uh, provision, pension provision. Uh, certainly the UK, I don't know enough about the US. Um, and in some ways that's quite sad because it, they, that industry provides a you know, huge amount of certainty and benefits to a lot of people uh it is not perfect by a long shot um and you're relying on um sort of a lot of investment complexity to try and beat your 
bond returns, beat your inflation to, to provide those benefits. But then that's where Bitcoin slots neatly in. Um, there's been a move to the money purchase again over a similar sort of period as employers stop providing DB and they start providing DC. And um, that is a natural step. Um, I think a flawed step, but I think a natural step um, because it's the company saying, I can't take this risk anymore. I need to pass it on to the employees. But the trouble then is the employees are taking on the responsibility of investing. So um, I like there's um, in fact, I think there's a video with you sitting next to him, Marty. There's a great, um, I think you said it a few times, Safer Dean has said, talked about how not having a proper savings he says it much better than me by the way but um uh, but it's along the lines of uh you know by not having a proper savings vehicle it forces people to invest i think it also forces people to spend because they don't know what else to do with their money um and people are then trying to understand stuff which you know i mean it's very very complicated it's complicated for a lot of investment professionals and the whole idea of you go to work, you do your job as a you know, doctor or a teacher or whatever it is, and then you've got to come home and you've got to be an investment professional in the evenings just to retain the money that you've earned. It is ridiculous. Um, and that was, I guess there's a few things that I suppose really struck me. So I mentioned the bubble. I suppose I was thinking of Jeff Booth when I was thinking about that. Um, and... Uh, Safer Dean saying that about the investing and savings and having effectively you need to have two jobs to keep the money you earned. Um, and I think that the, ultimately the truth will out. So if markets can be distorted for a long time, uh, and I'm not just talking financial markets here, I'm talking about pension provision markets, can be distorted for a long time, but eventually the truth will out. And the truth is that if you've got an asset that is the perfect money and doesn't die it's and particularly once we get to the second stage where she is you know just track roughly obviously it's not perfect nothing in life is perfect um of course it essentially tracks economic growth then that is like the perfect asset to have in a world of uncertainty that we all live in and we're never going to get away with that is life so I can I can see you know we could be many decades away from that, but I can see a scenario where the truth comes out through you know, of DB and DC and and some of the hybrids that are being created, which are even more complicated than either DB or DC to try and mitigate some of the risk, and then you end up in a position where actually most employees they want to get to work, they want to just focus on doing a really good job, they want to take their salary, and maybe some of that is in Bitcoin, maybe some of it is in the local currency, whatever, you know, that will depend on the situation at the time. And that could easily be where we'll end up. Now, there's a huge amount of vested interest to get through before we get to that stage because you don't need a lot of investment advice um, to be able to do that. But, you know, as I say, ultimately the truth will out. Uh, and I'd much prefer to be on the right side of history than to try and artificially keep the existing system in place or be part of that. Yeah. And I, Sam, I think I agree with you. I think this is going to happen much faster than people 
imagine because you have all these forces at play, whether it's the macroeconomic headwinds that are going to just hit markets globally. It is becoming abundantly clear that the Fed's uh, rate hiking regime may be coming to an end. We had Jerome Powell on 60 Minutes last night saying it's probably going to happen. It's definitely going to happen at some point this year. You have the increasing knowledge of Bitcoin and understanding of Bitcoin globally. And then you have these systemic problems uh, that exist throughout pension systems, fund systems, whatever it may be. And once the cat's out of the bag, people realize this, they start flooding in, there's not going to be any turning back. And this gets back to the point at which Bitcoin becomes like a benchmark that forces pensions to allocate, which forces them to sell positions in other parts of their portfolio to buy Bitcoin, which hinders uh, their performance, um, the, the, the assets that they're selling. And I could see just a crazy feedback loop, a sort of virtuous cycle to Bitcoin monetization happening rather quickly. And then on top of that, you have all the social developments in terms of people being more aware of inflation than they have in, in multiple generations and understanding that the institutions that are supposed to have our backs and look after us, whether that's the government, the media, big pharma, uh, the banking system are, are, are corrupt at their core. And I think there's this incredible culmination of events happening to produce an inflection point that sort of slingshots Bitcoin to uh, the reserve asset of the world. I would say in less than 15 years, it's funny because Jesse, you said it's going to take decades. We're already a decade and a half into this. I think yeah. from launch to reserve asset would take like 30 years, one generation. That would be 15 and, years from now. And, and Sam said three generations, which is also possible. I mean, anything in that range would be incredible. <laughs> I mean, w one thing to add though, um, Sam alluded to is this idea of um, that you reference safe about people don't have a good form of money. So their habits, and that's like, that's the scary part and the pervasive part of it. It may take longer because that's like a psychological thing. And the way it manifests now is you need your yield. So like getting somebody into Bitcoin is only like half the journey, right? Maybe a little more, but then there's this idea of like the, the Bitcoin is the yield. You don't need to do anything with it. And we know how many people in 2022 and 2021 don't have any Bitcoin anymore. And that's going to be a long, that's already a distant memory. So the next cycle we're going to see, you know, I think if we all probably agree we're going to see, you know, the animal spirits again. And so this idea is that it's an asset, but you're a sucker if you don't do something with the asset. And and that's the concern of like, does it happen that fast? Because there's an education that goes in. And the thing that's really like, it's kind of the annoying part of all this. And Sam, you alluded to, it's like this reality of getting to the other side of like, you just do what you were supposed to do, whatever it is that you were given from a like skills perspective and the money just protects you from it is a is a very like long thing to pick up and so most people are like what do i do with it what do i got to go out i got to trade it even the even even bitcoin like the whatever appreciation year over year and so that's the kind of part that i don't know if it happens as fast as we we want it to because it's still a psychological thing that you just like hold it you don't go and do something else with it because that's what you that's where you end up losing the asset i think it's what it is is it's not so much about bitcoin it's about the rest of the system so like, so in the UK, we had like 
in the way the government likes to measure inflation, 13%. I don't know if you guys have seen this website, Trueflation, where they kind of like create their own inflation baskets, right? And they call it 20%. Actually, there's no real inflation rate because it depends what you put in the basket, right? So it's different for everyone. But, but the thing is, everybody felt it in the US here, right? And so when those kinds of big systemic things happen, right? And everybody's like, hang on, what the hell's going on here? That's what I think more of that can make it make the Bitcoin adoption happen faster, right? Whereas if they're just stealing kind of 2% or 3% a year, then it's going to take longer, you know? And I also think that because of the four-year cycles, you're going to have these kind of waves of adoption, right? So, I, th you know, like it, with each new cycle, you'll have – like the people that kind of FOMO in at the top, right? And then it crashes and, you know, half of them or probably 80% of them don't stick around, right? But you got kind of this next. But I think what can really speed it up is if, because I think it is a real, a very real possibility. Like we were at a investment manager, an LDI, a liability-driven investment manager the other day, we were talking, we were getting, they were talking to us and there was this one guy who all he does is, well, maybe not all he does, but he just looks at like interest rates and inflation rates and swap rates and all of this kind of stuff. And he was basically giving us his kind of um, analysis of where the government is and how many guilt or, or UK government bonds they're going to have to issue. And I've seen similar analyses in the US and like the imbalance between demand and supply and, you know, all of this kind of stuff. And I think we could see a huge kind of a financial crisis in the normal system, you know. And then it's sort of like the response to 2008, but this time Bitcoin exists, and then all of a sudden it sort of bursts into the the consciousness of the masses. Yeah, we need to be careful there, don't we? Because uh, we're not saying that Bitcoin is the reason for the existing system to no. implode or explode. It's going to do that anyway. What we're talking about here is how can the least number of people be harmed mm. when it does blow? Um, and... You know, whether it's productive companies or whether it's uh, individuals from a sort of a philosophical point of view, I want as many people to be unharmed as possible. And, and the way to do that is to have some exposure to Bitcoin. The way to do that is to have an escape route, to have learned about that escape route. Um, and, yeah, no one knows the exact timing. But to be ready. But actually, so that goes back. Let's go pre-Bitcoin because this goes back to 08. Can you walk through, like, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, you came to this realization before Bitcoin about the system and the mm. inevitability. Can you walk through, like, I think most of us, I mean, we're at least on the, the, the pod that come on regularly. Um, we're very young, you know, to, like, have a full, obviously understood something was not right, but to know that it was a system that was – 
you know, bored into and you're, you have to pay taxes and go into, but explain like what your realization was in that. Yeah. So it was, so it's a realization that there was, there was, there was too much debt. Um, the way that money was created, you know, fractional reserve banking, but also, um, from the central bank and sort of how that system operates creates certain vulnerabilities, um, to the system as a whole, which is why we get business cycles and all the rest of it. So it was an understanding of that. And um, I suppose it was sort of realisation that it didn't seem to be widely realised, um, which is why, why maybe why the whole system was kept relatively um, together. Um, I suppose it was... Uh, and gold was the obvious escape route in those days, and obviously it was fairly well publicised. But even then, that didn't get you know, huge inflows. Um, what was the second part of your question? I was desperately trying to put two parts. You, you know, what it was for me, right, was that it was like, so you, you're an investment professional, right? And back then, so... At Cartwright, we think very long-term strategic. So we're not really thinking about tactical asset allocation or anything like that. We're thinking, you know, 20 years or whatever. If it's short horizons, well, then we're basically not in growth, right? We're just matching liabilities. But back then, I was working, and I've worked at a number of firms who were thinking more tactically, more kind of short-term, right? And for me, it was the realization that no matter what analysis we do, no matter, it's all meaningless because at any moment, the central bank can just pull out a massive money bazooka and make all of our analysis meaningless, right? So it was like the right thing was not to be invested in this or that or whatever. And then all of a sudden, they just make us look like idiots because all of a sudden, everything goes, you know, rocketing up because they've just kind of debased the denominator. It was the whole risk on, risk off, <clears throat> depending on what each central bank said at that particular moment. I mean, it was a little bit silly. Um, I mean, so uh, I like Marty's optimism, <laughs> if, if I can call it that, uh, the 15 years. Um, I think the mistake I made in 2008 was that the financial system cared at all about what I thought or when I thought it. So the mistake I made was that I th I've just found out all this stuff. I thought, oh, my goodness me. I didn't realize this is how the system works. This is going to fall apart. Is it, it feels like it should fall apart tomorrow. Um, but, of course, it, it's clung together um, for, well, over 15 years, actually. Um, so will it cling together for another 15 years? So I think I'm a lot more sceptical about my own ability to predict timing on these things and hopefully get the direction roughly right. I mean, it's also yeah. like quantitative easing, right? That was kind of the first time that I was like, what is this thing? Okay, I've got to figure out what this thing is. And then you figure out that they're just creating money out of thin air <laughs> and you know, and then buying, it's like, hang on, like, 
I spent four years at university and then another three becoming a chartered financial analyst. Nobody told me this was going on. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then yeah. you're like, you start to question everything that you've learned, right? You know, and yeah. Yeah, in the actual exams, no mention of the Austrian School of Economics <laughs> at all. Yeah, and, and no mention of the money bazooka that, uh, that changes everything. And, and so you guys were living through this experience in 2008 of like, wait a second, all the value investing that's based on like actuarial math uh, and, and you know, actual numbers of like what our future cash flows and what's that worth in terms of, you know, PE ratios. Um, all of that goes out the window if suddenly there's a, a money bazooka and, the, and risk on risk off is all that then matters. Is the bazooka turned on? Is it bazooka turned off? That becomes well, all that matters for, for, you know, portfolio construction. Well, that, and that's only one facet of the manipulation is the money bazooka, which is a massive manipulation. But then like going back to 08, like another form of manipulation was rating agencies. Like you could make all the actuarial analysis that you want to based off the bond rating of the commercial backed mortgage or commercial backed securities you were buying. <laughs> but at the end of the day, if you have one stakeholder in that flow, essentially lying, which the ratings agencies were, it just completely borks your models, no matter how good of an actuary you are. Yeah. Good film, that the big short. Yeah. yeah. I remember going to an interview at SMP where, so I'd, I started my career as a uh, bond trader and then I worked at a investment consulting and investment technology firm, American firm called Wilshire Associates. And uh, then I wanted to leave there <clears throat> and I started interviewing around. And one of the places I interviewed her was at SP to rate CDOs, right? <laughs> and this was before the 2008 financial crisis. And I always remember that interview because I would have been one of the guys at S&P rating these things full of subprime mortgages AAA. as AAA, <laughs> you know? Because we had like basically kind of had all these tranches of, and you know, they remember they had CDO squared, so CDOs that held CDOs and, just crazy stuff. I mean, like, how can you not look at all that? And you, you got into this industry thinking, I'm a clever guy. I've learned all of this really important stuff. And like, now I'm going to, you know, go and add value and kind of use my brain and all this knowledge and stuff. And then all of this stuff just makes a complete mockery of the whole kind of thing. Because basically just buy anything because it's better than having the money in cash, right? It's, and but, it's, but it's worse than that, isn't it? So I only know about the rating agencies from watching The Big Short, so I don't have any inside information there. Um, but if The Big Short's correct, then it was pretty awful. But it's more than that. It's you know by changing the interest rate, you're, you're f manipulating everyone's economic calculations and creating these boom burst bust cycles and creating these periods of hardship and um you know distorting so we wrote a uh, i say we wrote um glenn, we, we got someone else to write some of it and glenn wrote some of it um we've we're most of the way through a series that we're uh, running through a series of articles 
uh, called What is Money? So what we realized was that we could go out there and try and talk about Bitcoin, but actually we've missed a stage because most of our industry is very happy talking about equities and bonds and property and all the rest of it, but don't actually understand what money is. And so we felt that actually it needed some education there. So we had, we've got uh, 10 articles, haven't we? So seven, I think the seventh one comes out uh, later this week, um, three more to come. And it steps through various different um, things which you'd expect us to, I can't remember them all now, but one of them is the Cantillon effect. Um, and I, uh, for me, that was a, when I learned about that however many years ago, that I thought that was absolutely uh, fascinating in terms of how that works and just another distortion of what happens when you mess with with the money and who benefits and who doesn't and it's not a it's not a value judgment it's for each individual person should what's that it's an essay on economic theory by richard Cantwell. Oh, very good cool <laughs> so it's you know each of these articles and and each of the underlying theory behind them they're not value judgments you know it is for each individual reading them or you know in their daily life to make their own judgments we're not we're not saying that they should be thinking in a certain way what we're all we're trying to do is say look there's some information here which you may not be aware of it is up to you um what you then think about it and some people may be happy with those distortions in or manipulation of money flows other people will not be um so we're going to have a variety of clients with a variety of views the one we're putting out this week is how modern banking works, right? And so again, we're not telling people what to think. We're just telling them some stuff they might want to know, and then they can make up their own minds, right? So, you know, do you realize that when you put the money in the bank, that they're not keeping that money? In fact, they can give it to other people and they can create as much money as they want subject to demand given interest rates because the reserve requirement is 0%. They do, there's no such thing as fractional reserve banking in the UK and the US because that fractional reserve implies they've got to keep a fraction of the money that you put. They don't have to keep any. So just be aware of that. We're not telling yeah, you what yeah. to think about that. Maybe you think that's a good thing. Right. And, and, and that change happened in March 2020. 2020. And, and, you know, it was a temporary uh, fix to provide liquidity to the markets that uh, four years later, we still have. In, in the UK, they did it in the late 90s. Oh, really? It's been that way for that long? Wow. <laughs> You guys feel like you're a little bit of a canary uh, in the coal mine then with you, you, everything that happened with the gilt market uh, recently and the intervention that had to happen to stabilize things. A little bit more volatility over there. Yeah, well, it was like so misreported that whole thing, right? Because it was like, oh, the pensions would have gone bankrupt, right? We were like, no. The best thing that can happen to a defined benefit pension scheme, which is the large majority of where the assets and liabilities are in the UK. When interest rates, when yields on bonds go up like that, it's great for the defined benefit pension schemes, right? 
Um, and actually, because with li uh, liability-driven investment funds, you're using leverage, right? So it's like when you're hedging the interest rate risk using leverage, um, you need to meet collateral calls as the price of the bonds falls and the yields rise, right? Um, so that's where it's a, uh, the issue came. But the thing was, then the Bank of England kind of stepped in, right? So everybody got knocked out of their liability-driven investment funds because they couldn't meet the collateral calls quick enough, right? And then once they'd all been knocked out, then the Bank of England comes in and buys a whole bunch and drives the yields that, back that down. That was the problem. That was the problem. The, yeah. We'd have been, it'd been absolutely fine otherwise. Actually, a lot of pension schemes were licking their lips saying, this is awesome. I can buy bonds even cheaper. And huh. I, want, I want more bonds. And the bank, if the bank had come in and said, uh, we're going to, I think yields were about 5%, maybe just under 5% at the point yeah. in time. If they'd come in and said, we're going to cap yields at 5% or 5.5% or something like that, then actually it would have been all right. It would have played for time because the problem was when you got any leveraged fund, you call for, call for cash, you need at least some time to get cash from A to B. Um, that, that was, that was the, the difficult bit. Um, so if they just capped yields, they didn't. They just said, we're going to come and buy some. So massive, as Glenn says, I mean, it's so frustrating. Um how you can have such a big player who does not understand the market or how it operates and think the worst thing is they think they're helping that I mean, unbelievable so the proof that they were not helping defined benefit schemes is that uh, try and remember the numbers now something like they bought bonds in particularly in um, particularly in October 22 and they bought around nineteen billion pounds worth of of UK government bonds, and that that drove the yields down by half percent or one percent or so. The plan stated by them, to be fair, was that they would always they were short term they would sell them back to the market. So they bought them for nineteen billion pounds. They sold them for twenty-three billion pounds. So they made a profit, <laughs> which goes back to the UK government because of the way it's structured. Um, so At we've got to ask ourselves: Where does that four billion come from? So they basically manipulated the market to take four billion pounds from UK pension schemes. There'll be some other entities involved in that as well somewhere, but we're talking primarily. Uh, UK defined benefit pension schemes, and then they think they're helping. And then, and then the newspapers, I don't know if who told them this or whatever, their story is the Bank of England saved the pension schemes. <laughs> <laughs> this is your life on central planning. Yeah, that's definitely the, the headlines we got over here. It's almost as if uh, uh, when you're in adding additional intervention into a market, it causes problems. Amazing, right? If only someone had yeah. thought of that before. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, because, you know, like when the, the Soviets did it in uh, <laughs> Vietnam, it, it clearly works very well. Yeah, it, worked, when, it worked great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the more you do of it, the better things go. So, yeah. And I wonder if, I mean, for the pensions that do 
come around and adopt Bitcoin and allocate a certain portion of their portfolios to it, does Bitcoin's performance give them ammo against the government that may want to stop Bitcoin or intervene to say, hey, either this is really helping us, you cannot ban this this asset or try to prohibit this prol- proliferation. It's literally helping us fund pensions of the individuals that live in this country. And then number two, like, hey, we don't need your help. Uh, we've we found something that's doing really well for us. Uh, just leave us alone. We've got this figured out. You central planners don't understand. I mean, I wish w- we don't need you. I, w- I wish that was true, but we're not at that point yet where they kind of like, you know, that that's my view. I know that's your view, Marty, but I don't think they're just thinking of it. Oh, okay. Well, we could get a really good return out of this thing, but they're not looking at it as a way to hold the government to account and say, hey, if you keep doing this, then we're going to do that. Or what, you know. what, what about the cousin of that in, in the sense of like BlackRock and the, the SEC and large bodies approving it? How is that influenced? Have you seen any movement or just interest? I mean, when I mention it to people, so we, we've kind of, um, we actually, so we have in, investment monitoring reports that go out every quarter. And in there, um, we usually we call them hot topics okay so it's like three things that we want to get out to our client base and in there we did a piece just 200 words saying you know that the landscape of investment has changed because of the etf launches and you know we mentioned blackrock fidelity franklin templeton why because these are brand names that they know and that they trust and so it's sort of like, and when I've had conversations with people and I've mentioned the ETFs, or everybody that I've had a conversation with is aware that this happened, right? So I think that's kind of confusing people because it was like, I, I, every time I read about Bitcoin, um, it was used by criminals. It's bad for the environment. It's a Ponzi scheme. The government's saying stay away from it. Da, da, da. And now BlackRock and Franklin Templeton and Fidelity have just launched these ETFs. So it's like kind of like, now I don't know what to think, right? So I think that's helpful because, it, yeah. There is, yeah. there is, um, there will be an inflection point at some point in the future, though, I think, to, uh, which is helped by the BlackRock ETFs, and I think to, to Marty's point as well. So um, each pension scheme, so each each pension scheme trustee board must think only of their scheme. They can't think about widening that. It's looking at the investment advantages, disadvantages of having small allocation, etc. Right. So that that's what they must be focused on. Otherwise, they're not carrying out their fiduciary duty properly. However, I think there's a wider point that the more pension schemes that do this for their own reasons, but the more widespread it is, the more it is difficult for then the regulator or the government to uh, to act, uh, sort of, well, intervene, I suppose, in some way, because they are hurting, you know, they're, they're hurting, whether it's the companies that sponsor those schemes or the members, they're, they're hurting them by by taking that kind of interventionist action which are effectively their constituents they're people yeah. supposedly voting for them yeah 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 exactly so you'd hope that um the, the voters would would recognize that 
And this ties back into the Bitcoin employee benefits, right? Because if you're a member of a defined benefit pension scheme and the scheme rules say you get inflation as the government measures it, or, or they can stipulate it in the rules. They can say the retail price index, the consumer price index. You get that, but only up to 5%, right? If it's higher than 5%, you don't, you don't get the rest, right? But also the 5%, is that even real, right? So the defined benefit, the sponsor, the company behind that scheme is only on the hook for the rules of the scheme. Right, but the members are relying on that for thirty years of retirement, right? And so, if real inflation is ten or higher, and um, they're only getting five of the sort of metric that the governments come up with or whatever, they could be five percent every year, you compound that over 30 years, right? All of a sudden you're gonna, it's very nice having a defined benefit pension scheme, right? But it's not near the end, it's not gonna be nearly as good as it is in the beginning. And um, yeah, so even if we put Bitcoin in a portfolio, we're really only helping the company, the sponsor, because they're only on the hook for the rules of the scheme. Right? So you want people to have access to this thing outside of their pension to make kind of to make up for what's going to happen right, to think the, of it as a think of it as a two percent, right? So it's just to go back to that two, three, four percent. You know, maybe if we end up in a position where um, you know they've got most of their pension provision, at least like, you know over the next few years, most of their pension provision through DB or DC or, or whatever it is. And then two, three, four percent outside. Actually, that's probably quite a healthy position for for a lot of um, lot of individuals. I agree. I think to your points about it accelerating, or almost it's like it feels like it's accelerating in the sense of like high net worth individuals. I think of uh, my mother in law who retired, and and I always like egg egg her on because every year I'm just like you have less retirement, and like you can feel it. You go on vacation, it costs X. It's not, and it's not five percent. It's ten to fifteen, if not more. So you start to look at like, okay, I have this defined amount, and it historically was enough because it was two to five, and you felt it. Now you actually start, and that goes across the board, um, and that's not slowing down mm. since 2020. That's that's just exponentially increased, um, given money printer. Exactly. I mean, it's quite funny here. So the inflation link uh, guilt uh, here, they used to be linked to RPI. Well, they still are linked to RPI. But I think it's, what's it, 2032 or 2030? They, they're changing the thing that it's linked to, to CPIH, okay, which is Consumer Price Index and Housing. And then if you look at the level of RPI, and the level of CPIH, of course, CPIH is lower than RPI, right? So, but it's like the story is, you know, CPIH is a better, more accurate measure of inflation. It just happens to be lower, right? You know what I mean? So it's Indeed. like, the, you know, it's like, 
you think about these things like a logical human being and you're like, come on. We just need to look at ribeyes. Like whatever the ribeye is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a pretty good index. Oh, for, that's my basket. Uh, <laughs> <the> <laughs> <basket>. <laughs> yeah, it goes back to, Glenn, what you were saying earlier of like the, the four-year cycles it sort of cause people to go through their own um, steps of, of the adoption process. You know, and maybe you get in at the top in one cycle, but you, you learn and then the next cycle you DCA and, and then suddenly you are building a position and you're becoming a, a Bitcoin adopter, like in, in earnest and every individual goes through their own process. And that also extends to organizations and to, you know, to pensions who are made up of individuals who are decision makers. And folks like yourself who are who are providing advice to these organizations, but everybody in the world is going through their own adoption process, and it's a series of steps. Where at first you ignore it in 2013, then you know 2017 you're like, dang, I should have gotten some, and then 2020 happens, uh, they print a bunch of money. You're like, I don't know, this this feels wrong. Or Sam, in your case, uh, you know, Russia's foreign exchange reserves get seized. And that becomes like, all right, there's something wrong here and, and I need to take Bitcoin more seriously. And then, of course, you know, going into the future, there's not only the guaranteed mechanics every four years of the next halving, causing increasing scarcity, causing the next um, price run or, you know, the next uh, supply demand price equilibrium, disequilibrium that forces a, a price discovery that causes the you know, a, a price run and, and people pay more attention to Bitcoin for that period because that's how human nature works. There's that guaranteed to happen every four years. But but looking forward, what will be the macroeconomic events like Russia um, having its foreign exchange reserves seized, like the banking crisis um, and, and BTFP stepping in to, to save those banks? Um, like the COVID stimulus or, or like, uh, you know, 2008 and, and Occupy Wall Street's inefficacy, um, you know, and because of it not addressing the real problems. Um, what, are the, what are the events going forward? Uh, there's, recently, there's been some major event every year that has awakened people like Sam to like, you know what, this is, it's time to take Bitcoin seriously. And so what will be the next, like, series of events going going into the years ahead in addition to the having that we have coming up in three months you know and, and and it all points back to glenn what you were talking you know earlier about about every cycle there's some incremental slice of the adoption curve that comes into bitcoin or progresses to the next stage of their bitcoin adoption process and the culmination of that is this like three generations of behavioral shift away from how things are today to eventually just save your money in Bitcoin so you can work on your career and don't worry about investing because it takes care of you because it's, you know, finite absolute scarcity and it tracks with overall GDP growth like that, you know, and we're in the early stages of this process It's and that's the end state. Um, but, you know, it's exciting that Sam had this series of events move him into a position of adopting Bitcoin for professionally uh, and who 
who will be, you know, coming down the pike because, because BlackRock, you know, maybe that's the event right now that's happening is suddenly Wall Street is switching from negative to positive on Bitcoin because of the marketing that comes with a, an ETF. And over the next year or two, there's going to be a lot more people pointing at that and saying, you know, that was actually the start of me learning about Bitcoin and coming around to it. So there's this lag effect between events and then people becoming Bitcoiners. Sam's a, a recent example, I guess, of the Russia event triggering, you know what, I'm going to go on a two year long search for what's the right way to get my clients to take Bitcoin as an allocation. Uh, and, you know, Glenn was, was the, the instrument of making this all happen. Um, what happens going forward? What's the two year lag from, from, uh, the, the ETFs coming out now, the having coming in, in April and who knows what macroeconomic uh, series of events into the future. So you, you know, what we've been hearing a lot about lately, it's kind of bizarre, right? Is so we had this government minister on Sky News, like with uh, this very well-known TV presenter here in the UK, Kate Burley or something like that, asking her, asking him about um, comments that the general of the whole British army had been making about, um, potentially needing to get ready for a major world war and that we need, we may need to start conscription again, right? And I was watching this and I was thinking, what the hell are they talking about? <laughs> like, where's all of a sudden this coming from, you know? Like, wh what are we getting ready for? Like all of a sudden, like this is the plan, like and he's saying yes, we've got to get ready, like as if it's inevitable, you know, like they come in, like somebody's coming to war. get us, yeah, and then, and I think what that's about, right, is always when the system's collapsing, right, because you mentioned the unfunded liabilities, right? We got the same problem over here. It's just kind of different numbers, but relative to, you know, there it's like, it's like 300 trillion. trillion or your 300 trillion here. It's like only like 8 trillion, but relative <laughs> to the side of the economy, right. Uh, and the, given that the total debt only 2 trillion, right. It's like, you realize that if I'm a political party or a politician, right, there's no way out here because I can't tell people, oh, sorry, I know you put all that money into national insurance or social security, but I can't give you what I promised you. Well, then, then, then that's a next politician, you know. So you realize there's no kind of way out and um, the game's kind of up, right? We're, we're at that point now where the 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 explicit liabilities are so high and then there's all the unfunded liabilities and whatever and so you need to use a uh a, a world economic forum term you need a great reset right and so well how did we have the last great reset right because what happened is 
we kind of the the British pound was the um, global reserve currency in 1913, and they kind of did the stealth kind of QE to fund the First World War. Then, because they lied to the public, they had to go back on the gold standard at the same rate. They caused deflation, right? Then we had a worldwide Great Depression, right? And then we kind of did the New Deal and all of these kinds of things and whatever. But the game was kind of up, and then we had a world war, and then we had Bretton Woods, right? right. And then we ran that for 1970 till 1971, which was kind of a quasi gold standard, but really not a gold standard at all. Then we went from 1971 to today on the Sviet standard, but even the game with that is now up, right? So now we've got to like create some huge calamity where it's sort of we just erase all of that, and then at the, on the other side in the rubble, we'll kind of like create some new standard which will now be you know some cbdc or and um you know it'll be oh because of cyber attacks you you have to have a digital identity and you you know all this is what it's starting to sound like because they're saying that vladimir putin is like now a rest to the whole of europe right but he's still stuck in eastern Ukraine, just fighting the Ukrainians, right? So, like, how is he all of a sudden a threat to Europe? So when they say things like this on national TV and it's these very senior people and stuff, and they're absolutely illogical, they don't make sense, then I know there's a plan. So we're going to rename Glenn, Glenn Jones. <laughs> <laughs> Glenn, I, I'm picking up what you're it, putting down. <laughs> yeah. Marty's there, like, go, yeah, yeah. War is the greatest jobs program humanity's ever known. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah, but, I was going to go for something less extreme, but it sounds <laughs> sounds quite weak now. Um, no, they, I was going to. I, I think there's a shorter term. I, I, so I think the next, I think the next wave will come from the institutions. I think that is where it will come mm. from, and that's sort of what I envisaged a couple of years ago that we needed to get ready for. I think they'll be crying out for, yeah, okay, not very much, but the small allocation we've talked about. And I th and what will trigger that? Uh, I don't think it'll be the halving so much, although that might put it on the front pages a little bit more, uh, which is helpful. Um, I think it will be the next wave of inflation. So hmm. we, I mentioned earlier that what are the key risks that Bitcoin helps to protect against for institutions? It's counterparty risk. And inflation risk and we are uh, obviously I've got no insider knowledge on this but just sort of applying some Austrian school logic to it we are coming to the point where the interest rate rises we've seen are going to lead to some kind of contraction possibly serious contraction you know the, the tide goes out etc uh, and then the government and the central bank and not just in the UK, but I guess in quite a few countries, is then going to be faced with the decision that it's been faced with quite a number of times before, which is, does it allow the economy to, uh, to um, I was going to say collapse them, but um, sort of return to a more sustainable um, position, really, 
um, sort of unwind the excesses that that shouldn't have been shouldn't have happened in the first place, or does it print to push the future out uh, a little bit further? Uh, and I think we'll probably see one and then the other, uh, and so therefore we'll see a um, sort of uh, a reminder of the counterparty risk that corporate treasuries, uh, pension schemes, etc face institutional investors generally the, the counterparty risk that they face and also the inflation risk that they face and we'll see them in fairly short succession because i think that's what i think that's why um a lot of um pension schemes and their companies were more willing to take action in 2023 to lock in some of those high higher interest rates that we saw on bonds was because 2022 when bond yields were very low, was recent in their memory. So um, I think it needs it needs that. It needs for a general sort of awakening to a particular situation, it needs like two events within recent memory. And I think that's what there's a good chance that we'll get over the next, uh, who knows, you know, but um, you know, six, 12, 18 months maybe. Uh, and then... Hopefully that will mean that more people are thinking, mm, okay, I think something doesn't feel right. It's going back. It's that feeling of uneasiness that, well, I don't know if it's the same for you, but I think it's probably the same. I'd, I'd, I'd suggest it's the same for everyone. To take action, to do something, you need to feel uneasy about your current situation. And it's that which then forces you subconsciously of otherwise to take action in a certain direction to try and ease that uneasiness and make yourself feel a bit better uh, and one way to do that is of course for these kind of things to learn more about bitcoin yes do not be paralyzed by fear act simple act just be reading some information about bitcoin to develop the confidence and then take another action which is getting it on your personal or business balance sheet or pension balance sheet whatever it may be yeah, and if uh, if you want to learn more from Glenn's um, understanding of the system, you have to come to to the UK and uh, visit him and take him out to dinner. Where I think we're getting kicked out of the studio, but uh, looking forward to eating steak and, and hearing him expand on uh, some of his Marty Jones um, <laughs> thoughts. Well, yeah, let's go with what Sam said. I, Ignore what I said. I, lo I, lo I love Sam's pivot to um, the actionable. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's the there's the short term and and maybe the long term, which are not incompatible between what you guys were presenting. But yeah, I would love to uh, hear more about that over a pint of bitter uh, with uh, Glenn and Sam. I'm jealous. Yeah, yeah. I, th I think the key, if if we're allowed to leave you with a sort of a key message from us, um, I think it's that this monetization phase that we've talked about that is what creates the huge opportunity for institutions to dip their toe in the water. It's not going to be around forever. Uh, so act. Yeah. Because Bitcoin is what it is and you can't stop it. So it is inevitable. And if it's inevitable, it's going to monetize. So we don't know how long over what period. It might be five years, it might be 15, it might be 50 doesn't really matter. No, and they're, and they're not making any more of it. 
There's only 21. <laughs> then not. So. So. Well, they are still, but only very little. Yeah. Less, <laughs> yeah. and less and less. They're making less <laughs> and less of it. Yeah. Who's making them, Glenn? Right. <laughs> well, I'm extremely jealous. Jealous. The FOMO is real right now across the pond. Uh, you gentlemen go enjoy your dinner and the conversation around that meal. And it was, uh, it was a pleasure meeting you, Sam. Glenn, pleasure talking to you again. For everybody out there listening, we'll see you next week.